we're happy to have you. Um, I just like to sit down with the folks and talk to them. I like to get you a doctrinal statement so you can read through it, make sure you know what we believe, you know, that kind of thing. So you know what you're getting into. That's it. Yes, ma'am. No. Nope. We love visitors. Yeah, we want people here as often as possible. So we've been around for just over two years, and we have some folks that are happy church members at their church, but they like studying the Bible, so they come here on Fridays. And we want that as much as possible. Any Christian for that matter, any non-Christian that wants to learn the Bible, we want you to come, we want you to drink our coffee, and we want you to eat our tamales when we have a special night. You know, everyone's welcome. Yep. So good question. Okay. Uh, on top of that, next Friday, one week from today, we are having our Hanukkah potluck. So Hanukkah starts Sunday night at sundown. It goes for eight, eight days or eight nights. And one of those nights is a Friday, so every year we get together. If you have a, uh, if you have a menorah, if you have a Hanukkah, uh, the eight or nine branch candlestick, um, sorry, the seven or the eight, um, bring it, bring candles, we light them, we, we tell the Hanukkah story because a lot of people have never heard the Hanukkah story, so we talk about that, and we just potluck in Mexican food. So we get dozens and dozens of tamales from Maria's, the restaurant just downtown, and then we ask everyone to potluck in something as far as Mexican food. And we like people to focus on the savory food. Okay, so, and I only say that because if you've ever been to a potluck where like everyone turns up with brownies, it's a lousy potluck. So like, you know what I mean? So you have to have some people bring food and some people bring desserts. So with a small group, it's easy where everyone's like, oh, you know, I'll just bring chips and salsa. And it's like, you have eight people. That, it's funny. I mean, I'll, I'll, it doesn't matter. Okay. Uh, with that being said, those are our only two announcements that I have. So let's have a word of prayer and we'll jump into the book of Obadiah and we'll get through this. <clears throat> God, you are just absolutely uh, amazing. You are so patient and you are so kind. Uh, God, you are you are our uh, friend and you are our king. And Lord, you are our comforter in the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> you are the one that guides us and uh, and leads us. God, you are the Savior and the Creator. And we are so grateful that you hear our prayers and that uh, that you sent your son to die on the cross for sinners like us. God, we want to ask that you'd please just forgive us of any place where we've had shortcomings and in here 
that everyone would just have a uh, a good, uh, fun, and safe uh, Christmas or Hanukkah, as it as it may be. And uh, God, please keep everyone safe. As a lot of folks travel, know a lot of college kids that are traveling home, you know, for uh, uh, for this break. And uh, we just want to ask that you'd keep them safe. And uh, Lord, with that, um, please bless this night and all that we do and say, and give us a good weekend in Christ's name. Amen. Okay. <coughs> and I should say, if anybody does not have a place to go this Sunday to watch the World Cup, you can come to our house and do it with us. It is... Oh, starts at 7 a.m. <laughs> so bring coffee. Yeah, yeah. We were, Mom, what time did you say you think you're going to come over? Okay, so we're probably going to start watching it at 8. So we're going to make breakfast and have coffee, but we'll be watching it at 8. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that was the magic word was breakfast. All right, let's open our Bibles. Let's turn to the book of Obadiah. And uh, we have to read verses. Uh, we're going to read verses 15 to 21 because that takes us to the end of the book. And we'll have a brief review just because it's a good way to kind of get our feet planted. Okay, let's read in verse 15 through the end, through 21. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the heathen. Whew. I'm glad I'm not a heathen when I read that verse. Okay, for the day of the Lord is near upon all the heathen. As thou hast done, it shall be done unto thee. Thy reward shall return upon thine own head. For as ye have drunk upon my holy mountain, so shall all the heathen drink continually. Yea, they shall drink and they shall swallow down and they shall be as though they had not been. But upon Mount Zion shall be deliverance, and there shall be holiness, and the house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. And the house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, the house of Esau for stubble. And they shall kindle in them and devour them, and there shall not be any remaining of the house of Esau, for the Lord hath spoken it. And they of the south shall possess the mount of Esau, and they of the plain, the Philistines, and they shall possess the fields of Ephraim and the fields of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead, and the captivity of this host of the children of Israel shall possess that of the Canaanites, even unto Zarephath, and the captivity of Jerusalem, which is in Sepharad, shall possess the cities of the south. And saviors shall come up on Mount Zion to judge the Mount of Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. <coughs> Excuse me. Did anyone get the head cold that was going around a couple weeks ago? Did it hit everybody? Yeah. Does anyone have a lingering cough, like just a little cough that won't go away? Yeah, that's what I, we've had. It's it just it never leaves. Just deal with it. That was it? Okay. I was going to say, if they gave you something, let's, let's have it. All right. So the book of Obadiah. Um, who is the book of Obadiah prophesying, we'll say, to or against? The Edomites. 
Eat them. Very good. And are the Edomites good guys or bad guys? They're definitely bad guys. They, they, these guys were enemies of Israel through the whole Bible. And we're going to, well, I'm going to save, I'm going to save that. We're not going to get ahead of ourselves. Otherwise I, I get all messed up. All right. So God sounds pretty serious about the punishment of the Edomites and God usually does. Have you ever, have you ever read in the Bible where God's punishment is a slap on the wrist? No, that's not. So, the the when when we think of God's punishment, <clears throat> we need to think of the word long suffering. That's a that's a great King James Bible word that we just don't use anymore, right? So, what does long suffering mean? That's that's really what it means. But when we say suffer, what are we talking about? We're, it's not suffering as far as we are suffering under some kind of persecution. Washington, what do you think? Yes, so God is waiting for someone to turn around for a long time. So when you think of justice, now here's the, this is the tough part. When you're teaching someone the Bible, and when you are helping, uh, especially a new Christian, learn the Bible, they read some great parts about how patient God is, and how kind he is, and how loving he is. And then we read some parts about how serious he is, and how harsh his judgments can be. And we're like, man, how does this all work? You know, are we reading about the same God? Yes, yes, we are. So God has attributes, and they're like a it's like a teepee. You start pulling these attributes out, the rest of them are going to fall. See, God's love only works with this other word. So for love to work, okay, you need truth and you need justice. Now, the problem is justice always seems, when we read in the Bible, pretty serious and pretty harsh, and it is. But you also have to remember, before this justice, there is long-suffering. God gives so much rope. He gives so much slack. He wants you to turn around and do his will. He wants to bless you so bad. So he's going to wait, and he's going to wait, and he's going to wait. And he's going to softly nudge, and he's going to softly nudge, and then he's going to shove, and then he's going to send prophets your way, and they're going to have other people tell you what's going on. God always is long-suffering. God did not destroy the Edomites on a whim. God is not capricious. He is not easily swayed by emotion and quickly changing his mind back and forth on a whim. Okay, God is long-suffering, and he waits, and he gives opportunity, but in the end, there is justice. And we're going to talk about this a little bit uh, when we get to uh, the verses in the book of Exodus. So this is really the first lesson for us to learn in the book of Obadiah, or at least in tonight's lesson. 
So let's use an analogy. Let's use one thing and compare that lesson to another thing. So question for you, how much does God bless those that love him? Immeasurably. Okay. So that's the, that's the first answer we got. We're going to say that's the far end of the spectrum, right? Immeasurably. So how about this? If we were to set it up as a scale from one to 10, 10 being the most, and we said, when God has somebody that loves him, how much does he want to bless them? Where would you say God lands on that? Okay. Let me ask you this. Think of the most generous person you've ever met. Most generous person you've ever read about. Is God more generous than that person? Okay, so God is the definition of generosity and kindness and benevolence and love and blessings, right? Okay. So then here's the question. What about when God punishes those that hate him? See, it wouldn't be justice if God blesses over here at a 10 and God punishes over here at a 1.5. God's punishments are very serious. Serious to a point where in today's criminal justice system, they would be looked at as cruel, as harsh. And we're going to get to this as far as an idea. So when God punishes a group, the sharp end of that stick is a 10. It doesn't get any sharper. But remember, this long suffering usually goes on for generations upon generations. You'll have groups that are around for hundreds and hundreds of years, even a, even a thousand years before God says, I tried and I tried and I tried. You just wouldn't listen. So that's what the Edomites are hearing in the end of the book of Obadiah here, from verse 15 on through 21. Now let's look at, if you've got a Bible, turn to Galatians chapter 6, verse 7. There are only four verses we're looking up tonight. Isn't that going to be easy? So unless you guys have a bunch of questions, this one's going to be, it's not going to be a real page turner. <clears throat> so Galatians chapter 6, verse 7. Be not deceived, God is not mocked, for whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. So what someone sows, they reap. Now this idea is so simple that you would think we wouldn't even need to explain it. So if I were to sow pumpkin seeds, what would I expect to reap right? I'd expect to reap pumpkins. If I sow watermelon seeds, what would I expect to reap? Watermelons. God is saying, it's this clear, you guys did the sowing. You know what you're going to get. That's what God is saying. He's saying, you threw down the seeds, don't be surprised when that thing grows up. 
So to the Edomites, he is telling them, you did this and you did this and you did this and you did this and you did this. Guess what you're going to get now? This idea is one of the oldest in Scripture. As you do, it shall be done unto you. It is not some mystical Hindu force called karma. It is called justice. It is from God. God is righteous. Now, who loves justice? Well, you're all raising your hands, meaning you, which is great. Okay, I'm glad that everyone here likes justice. Think about it. Who is justice important for? Who needs justice? Yeah, the victim. Do you know when we love seeing justice? When we see the victim. At that point, we hurt. We are sad for that person that was wrong. They were stolen from. Someone in their life that they love was killed. Some bad thing happened to them. And at that point, We hurt inside because we cannot help them. We cannot make them whole. And we rely upon a justice system to make things right. And unfortunately, we are oftentimes disappointed with our justice system. Do you know that the Jews for thousands of years, as they have been mistreated and taken advantage of and wholly exterminated by many groups throughout time. They have always leaned on this idea, at least God is just. And they have always believed that no matter what, when we die one day and stand before God, we will get justice. And God does not let anything go. He doesn't miss anything. He doesn't forget God is just, and anyone who is a victim is grateful that God is just. Now, in verse 15, God plainly says, you are going to get what is owed. It says, as thou hast done, it shall be done unto thee. God said, thy reward shall return upon thine own head. Now, that to me is one of the scariest and least popular ideas in churches. That's not a very comforting idea, getting what we deserve. Now, I know that in America today, we all think that we're just wonderful, right? (laughs) I mean, we're just the best. And if God knew that, you know, we would just be doing great. But that's when we look around at the world and we're like, well, yeah, when I compare myself to Al-Qaeda, sure, I'm, <laughs> I'm wonderful. When I compare myself to really bad people, but think about this. We're not supposed to compare ourselves amongst ourselves as the manner of some is. Okay, God says that's not wise. Who are we supposed to compare ourselves to? We're supposed to compare ourselves to God. Well, when I compare myself to God, how do I measure up? Yeah, I'm not doing well at all. Now, don't get me wrong. That that doesn't mean that you're not nice people and you don't do nice things a lot. But when I compare myself to God, all of a sudden, I fall short. What did Jesus say? What did Jesus say the bar was? 
When he was hearing the Gospels and he was up on a hillside somewhere and he was teaching, what did he say? What are you supposed to do? You're, you're supposed to something about how your heavenly father is. You're supposed to be. Yeah, I know. Okay, I'm going to find the verse because that's how important it is. Let's go to the book of Matthew. First book in the New Testament. I'm going to guess around chapter 5. I know, it's not on our list. Yeah. Let's see. Nope, that's okay. Let's see how fast I can find it. Almost there. Let's go to Matthew 5, verse 48. Oh, very, very last verse in the chapter. Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. What is Jesus' bar? What's the standard he set that he asked for us? Perfect. Perfection. He said, be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Well, <laughs> great. <laughs> so, so that's what we're supposed to compare ourselves to. So, okay, let me give you this idea. When people ask me how I'm doing, some say, Patrick, how are you doing today? Has any, what's my response? I only have two. Mac, better than I deserve. That's what I say to people all day, every day. Okay, if you're a Dave Ramsey fan, you've heard that him say that on his radio program all the time. Patrick, how you doing? Better than I deserve. You want to know what people most often do when I say that? They say, surely that's not the truth. Because what I'm saying is that I don't deserve very well. That's what I'm saying. And people are like, oh, I'm sure that's not true. Yeah, yeah, it is. I don't deserve good. I don't deserve anything good. Now, people have trouble swallowing that, and I'm not asking that you believe that about yourself. I'm just saying that that's what I believe about me, is that for me, I'm not good. I'm not righteous. There's nothing good in me. My heart is black and wicked and deceitful, desperately wicked, the Bible says. Who can know it? But at the end of that, I say, but God loves me anyhow. That's the great news. My point with that is this. God is telling the Edomites, you're going to get what you deserve. What I'm saying is when I look at what I deserve in the light of what God expects of me, that's the worst phrase I could ever hear. What I deserve is to be in hell, but I'm not going. That's the great news. For the born-again Christian, we don't get what we deserve. That's the best news out there. I'm going to heaven. I don't deserve it, but I get to go there. These people are being told, you are going to get what you deserve. And all of a sudden, what are they thinking? Well, we haven't really been very nice to people lately. Yeah, we haven't been really good lately. In verse 16, what did the Edomites do when the Jews were carried away to Babylon? Party. They did party. There's a couple things they did. 
Now, it's not listed in verse 16. I better turn back to Obadiah. But God says, that these guys, okay, for as ye have drunk upon my holy mountain. Okay, let's go over that because mountains are talked about twice in this chapter. So there are two mountains that we need to identify, hence the maps. So we read about Mount Zion. Anyone know where Mount Zion is? <laughs> there is a Mount Zion in Utah, Rick. Very good. Uh, that's not the one that Obadiah was talking about. He was talking about one in a very important city in Israel, Jerusalem. So that's where there's a Mount Zion. Does anyone know where Mount Esau is? And we're going to read about that one, uh, I don't know, a little later. So Mount Esau is, it's below this map down about here. Now on this map, it is just inside the border of present-day Jordan, uh, just east of Israel, south of the Dead Sea. You can look it up on a map. It's the high point. That's Mount Esau. Mount Zion is in Jerusalem. It says, for as ye have drunk upon my holy mountain, so shall all the heathen drink continually. Okay, so they literally went to Mount Zion and got drunk. Now, what did the Edomites do when the Jews were carried away captive to Babylon? They did a handful of things. Does anyone remember what they did? Okay, they didn't help the Jews. They just let the Babylonians beat them up. They didn't care. What else did they do? They looted Jerusalem. When the Jews were carried away, the Edomites were like, all right, let's see what's left. And they marched into Jerusalem, and they stole everything that wasn't nailed down. This is ours. We claim it. Calling dibs. They happened to get into the wine. They had a storage of wine that they used for their ceremonies. They'd pour it out on the altar. They gave drink offerings. And the Edomites got that wine and they had a big old party and they drank it all. Okay. So when it's talking about how they got drunk on God, on, and God is saying on my holy mountain, Mount Zion, that's in Jerusalem, literally they broke in and got the keys to the liquor cabinet and drank all the wine. And God is saying, so shall all the heathen drink continually. Yea, they shall drink and they shall swallow down and they shall be as though they had not been. So God is saying, you are going to get what you deserve based on what you did. <clears throat> I think that's how you spell it. Does anyone know Latin? It's okay. It's this frustrating thing in the judicial system. They want to write everything in Latin. It's great. Lex talionis. It is. It is an eye for an eye. So the literal translation, I think, is called the law of retaliation. And what it is, it is a judicial term that means that the punishment will be fitting of the crime. Where did it come from? Jeff just told us. Exodus 21, 
It came from the law of Moses. In Exodus 21, verses 23 through 25, we read, And if any mischief follow, then thou shalt give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burning for burning, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Now, when we hear that law, what do we think about today? How does that sound to us? It sounds extreme. Now, when this law was written, what was the intent of the law? There were two. When God wrote it down and gave it to Moses and said, this is how you will bring justice, there were two intents for this law. The first one was mercy. This law was considered merciful because the pagan nations around the Jews did not consider life for life to be enough. They had much more strict and harsh punishments than eye for eye, tooth for tooth. And what God was saying is, nope, <clears throat> this is the way, this is the only way we can do it. Your punishment may not exceed what the victim suffered because that's not justice. So mercy was the intent of this law. You want to know who told me that? A judge. One of my good friends is a judge down in Montrose, and I was talking to him while I was going over this Bible study, and he was explaining this to me. And obviously, he's had a lot more legal training than I have. And he was explaining that, Patrick, the, the punishments that they had when you go over the laws of Hammurabi, when you go over the laws uh, in, in uh, all over the world, not just in Assyria, but in Babylon and in Egypt and all over the world, they were harsh to a point where people were scared to death to ever break the law. And God was saying, that's not justice. This is what we have to do. But with that, when somebody kills your loved one, they took a life, they have to trade in theirs. That's the way it worked. Do you know that the Bible, okay, you ready for this? Just since we're on this, and I love talking about this because, you know, no one ever talks about it and it's real controversial. So those are like my two favorite. That, that's just exact. That's down my, up my alley. Do you know what you don't find anywhere in the Bible when we're talking the judicial system? When you're talking Bible justice, there's something that you never read about. Nowhere in the book of Moses, nowhere in the Old Testament, nowhere in the New Testament concerning God's law do you find this one building, a jail. Nowhere in this book do you find a jail with God. Now, yes, the Romans built jails, but the Romans weren't following the book of Moses, you don't find, no, nowhere do you find a custodial sentence 
Do you know that when someone would beat somebody up and they would steal their wallet, the Bible said you are going to get lashes. And do you know what I was told by my friend? He said most criminals would rather just stand on a post and get a beating and then go home rather than go to prison. Just give it to me and let's get this over with. Okay, you caught me. I have to make restitution. And restitution is made in the Bible. Do you know what? And we're not going to get into the details. I'm not going to give you the verses, but you guys can look them up because you love reading the Bible on your own. If I steal your sheep, do you know what I owe you if you catch me? I owe you two sheep. Yeah. You say, well, why? Well, because if all I have to do is give you back your sheep, then why not try stealing it? Okay, so there is a deterrent. That's the way that it works. But there are only, there are no custodial sentences. There's a punishment. There's a fine. Okay, there, there's corporal punishment, which, you know, with little kids is spanking in the military, on the, uh, in the Navy, you know, they had corporal punishment, which was physical exercise, which was literally, you know, getting whipped. These things existed. They don't anymore. You're not going to find that anymore. But the punishment was dealt with. It was over and everybody moved on. There were no jails. Yeah, something to think about. Okay, so I don't want to get too far in the weeds. So <clears throat> God, Lex Talionis, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing that properly, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, is God's system of justice. God has been long-suffering with the Edomites. He has put up with them abusing the Jews for hundreds and hundreds of years, and now he said, you are going to get what you've done. You've sown this. Now it's springing up. You know what you're getting. You sowed the seed. That's what God says. So God explains that here. They, they were traitors to the Jews. Therefore, their own confederates would betray them. We read about that in verse 7. Remember, they were the neighbors of the Jews. They didn't come to help the Jews, even though they were relatives. They were supposed to. They just let the Babylonians come on in, and they even helped the Babylonians. They said, okay, now your allies are going to turn on you. Uh, they plundered and looted Israel, so their nation would be robbed. We read about that in verses 5 and 6. Edom was violent, so they would be cut off completely. And Edom wanted the Jews to be destroyed, so Edom would be destroyed. Edom was going to reap what it sowed. Although many might consider that harsh, keep in mind, it was justice and mostly because of the long-suffering of God. Now, what was on record the most wicked nation in the Bible? And this is an objective question, okay? I, or I'm sorry, this is a subjective question. I don't know if I'm right. Okay, we got to vote for Babylon. What's that? Sodom and Gomorrah? Um, yeah, I mean, they were bad too. I'm thinking like evil towards others. Okay, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, those were the two I was thinking for sure. Okay, now, what did God do with the Assyrians? He did, wiped them off the face of the earth. But before he did that, what did he do? 
before the destruction. Yeah. Who gave the warning to the Assyrians? It was Jonah. Jonah went to the Assyrians. Nineveh was the capital of the nation of Assyria. Jonah went there. Didn't want to go there. Why didn't he want to go there? Oh, they were so mean. If you want nightmares, look up the punishments the Assyrians would do to their foes when they would conquer a land. Just read about what they would do. They were the most cruel and wicked and awful people. They, they were so bad. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So Jonah goes and God's, what was God's message for the Assyrians? It wasn't. We're going to get to it. God's message wasn't, you better cut it off. God's message was 40 days and your ashes. 40 days and kaboom. That was the message. He went there by God to tell them you're done. Your destruction will be complete. And what happened? Nope. They repented. Yep. They repented to the, it says that the animals sat in sackcloth and ashes. Do you know what sackcloth is? Now, we don't buy burlap sacks of potatoes anymore, right? I mean, we just, that's not how we buy them. But anyone remember a burlap sack? They would literally make clothing out of that burlap sack, Okay. Yeah. Oh, it's rough against your skin. You can't get comfortable. They'd make clothing out of it. And they would sit there mourning. And it was a constant, itchy, uncomfortable, horrible reminder of, of their terrible state. It was a reminder that they couldn't do anything without just being uncomfortable so that they could remember, I am to be here praying to God. I'm distracted by this uncomfort. I can't do anything else. And they, they would sit there and they would heap ashes on their own head. Okay. I don't remember the symbolism with that. So I'll look it up before we get to Jonah. And everybody in the city, the entire city, the king said, we will all sit in sackcloth and ashes and beg God. And God said that he was so impressed that he called off the destruction of one of the most wicked nations in the history of the world. In the book of Ezekiel, and I didn't look this up, God says, I take no pleasure in punishing the wicked. That's what God says. How much pleasure? Zero. God would rather not do it. Now, you ask any parent in the world, do you find any pleasure in punishing your children. No, nobody likes it. We do it because it's good for them. Okay, that's why we set up rules and that's why we have punishments when the rules are broken because we don't want the kid to touch the hot stove. We don't want them to play in traffic. 
So we do, we set up the system to protect them because we love them. God says the same thing in Ezekiel. You guys are going to have to look it up on your own because I can't remember the verse. He says, I take no pleasure in the punishment of the wicked. It's not what he wants. That's why he is long-suffering. He waits and he waits and he waits and he gives chances and chances and chances. In verse 17, Obadiah tells the Edomites that the Jews are going to possess your land. Did you hear that? The Jews are going to possess your land. That's what he says in verse 17. Um, Upon Mount Zion shall be deliverance, and there shall be holiness, and the house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. In verse 18, God says, none of you Edomites will be left when I'm done with you. God calls Israel fire and a flame, and he calls the Edomites stubble. You ever see dried up grass and twigs kindling, if you will, and a spark hit that? Okay, that goes up fast. You have a dry field full of dead, dry grass, and you start burning that field. You got to be real careful the wind's not blowing because, man, it takes off so fast. And what's left? I mean, nothing. It's just boom, ash, it's gone. When prophecy the Jews were at a real low point now there's a lot of debate as to when the book was written but we know that the book was written after a certain point because God talks about certain events in the past tense so we assume that God is being literal about you guys did this and you shouldn't have done this. Well, we know when this date happened, which means Obadiah was written after that time period. Okay, so God says in verses 13 and 14, you shouldest not have entered into the gate of my people. That's when they went looting. So after the Babylonians took the Israelites away, the Edomites went into Jerusalem. In verse 14, he says, neither shouldest thou have stood in the crossway to cut off those of his that did escape. So again, God's saying, you guys shouldn't have stood in the way and blocked the Israelites that were trying to flee for safety. So you shouldn't have done that. So we know that Obadiah was written after that. When the book was written, understand the Jews were at a real low point and the Edomites appeared to be gaining the upper hand. Now, the Edomites came from down here, and they moved up, and this idiomea is the Greek word for Edom. And what they did was they moved in, and they ended up taking over this land and forming their own little nation right there, and they made Hebron, um, sorry, Hebron's right here, they made Hebron their capital. And even though the Babylonians sacked Jerusalem and took away uh, the, uh, the Jews, okay, they left Hebron intact, and the Edomites moved in. Now, the Edomites wanted this land really badly because this Okay, so from here, you look at, you have Turkey, okay, present-day Turkey, and you have the uh, Tigris and the Euphrates rivers, okay? And all of this went down through Israel into Egypt. 
and all of Egypt, which was an agricultural mecca as far as producing food, went through this land to get to Babylon to go north and south. Israel was at a crossroads that made them very profitable because there were roads that went through there. So the uh, Edomites were thrilled when the Jews were taken away and they wanted that land. So the Jews were being marched out of Babylon and the Edomites seem to be gaining the upper hand. They're like, this is great. Our whole country is going to thrive. Okay, this is wonderful. Now, it's at that time when Obadiah goes to the Edomites and saying and says, the Jews are going to possess your land. What's happening to the Jews right now? Yeah. They are marching off to Babylon. That would be the same as someone going up to Harry Truman in 1945 and saying, the Japanese will conquer the United States. They just had two atomic bombs dropped on them, and their nation was starving to death. And we say, they will take over your land. That's insanity. Nobody would believe that. Israel was under siege by the Babylonians. <clears throat> Anyone here ever been in a city that was under siege? I haven't either. But I read about some. One of the most famous cities that went under siege in recent history that we have a lot of records on was Leningrad, formerly St. Petersburg. In World War II, Adolf Hitler wanted to destroy St. Petersburg, large city in Russia. He surrounded the city in 1941, and by July, he surrounded the city in June, end of June, beginning of July. By the middle of July, they started rationing food. All these people from Russia all the civilians started marching in. They fled to the major city to hopefully get protection from their country's army. So Leningrad was walled off. They, they formed lines. The, the Germans had their lines surrounded and cut off the city. Okay, the Russians had their lines, and they were trying to defend themselves. The Russians decided to stand up all together and defend the city. And on September 19th, masses of citizens, women and school ch children, came to fight in the defensive lines in Leningrad to try to stop the Germans from overtaking the city and killing everybody. Adolf Hitler orders, and I quote, St. Petersburg must be erased from the face of the earth, and we have no interest in saving lives of the civilian population. In October, food shortages caused serious starvation of the civilians, and Hitler makes a speech in Munich where he says Leningrad must die by starvation. The whole idea of a siege is you surround the city. Nobody gets in, nobody gets out. No food can be brought in, no help can be brought in. The people are just there, and you have whatever you have, and they get behind the walls, and they try to fight you off, and you try to get in. But Usually in a siege, at least back in the Bible times, more so than today. Today they have artillery, so they're shooting right at you and you're shooting back. Okay, back in these days, everything was cut off and they're like, we're just going to wait them out. 
Okay, and if they could send in, you know, if they could light you on fire, that was great. Okay, they used to take dead bodies that were decomposing with disease and shoot them over the walls with a catapult as a form of biological warfare. So in Stalingrad, at this time, 5,000 to 7,000 civilians die every day from starvation. By the end of 1941, 780,000 civilians, or sorry, at least Russian citizens, die by starvation. The daily ration for working men is 500 grams of bread every day. That's about 12 or 13 slices of bread, which would yield roughly 1,000 calories, which is about one-third of what a man who has a very hard, active working life needs, like someone in the military. So they were on a diet where they were starving to death. <clears throat> By the end of the siege, that number of the amount of food they got was cut in half. Now, Israel, they were under siege by Babylon. And Babylon cut off and surrounded Jerusalem. And the Israelites were starving to death. What did they do towards the end of the siege? It's a famous passage in Lamentations. In order to survive, the Jews were eating their dead children. The implication is they were killing them and eating them. They were, <clears throat> to get to that state, you have to be in such a bad way, none of us will ever understand it. It was such a horrifying time when they were surrounded by the Babylonians. They were all starving to death. They were a skeleton of a, of a real person. So then the Babylonians... They get in, they destroy the temple, they destroy the walls, they destroy the city, they light it all on fire. They kill mass numbers of Jews, and then they take the survivors and they line them up and they march them off to Babylon. Do you know how they marched you off? You know what the Babylonians did to you? The hike from Jerusalem to Babylon was eight days they would bore a hole through your nose and put a hook in there and tie that off with a tether and all the slaves were tied up that way. And then they would hook that off to a wagon and they would start marching. Now, <clears throat> picture this. Because this is... Obadiah is written just after this, sometime. So the Edomites get this letter from God. The Jews are lined up as slaves, being dragged away to Babylon. Behind them, the city, the temple, the wall is crushed down to powder and lit on fire. The Jews have been starving to death. 
And God goes to the Edomites and says, these guys are going to destroy you. God tells the Edomites, these guys right here that you see marching in front of you, at the lowest point the Jews have ever been in the history of the world as far as I'm concerned. God says, these guys are going to be the ones that I use to destroy you. That would be ridiculous to hear if you lived in Edom. These guys? And God said, not only are they going to destroy you, there's going to be literally nothing left. So in verse 19, anyone know where Mount Esau is? I think we mentioned it before. It's in present-day Jordan. What does God say about it? He says it's going to be possessed by Israel, and they of the south shall possess the Mount of Esau, <clears throat> and they of the plain of the Philistines, and they shall possess the fields of Ephraim and the fields of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. So now God's explaining to the Edomites the Jews are going to own this piece of land. They're going to own this piece of land. They're going to own this piece of land. They're going to own this piece of land. So one of them is yours. One of them is where your capital is. So that's gone. Just so you know, that now belongs to the Jews. But then God lists these different places. Well, the fields of Ephraim and the fields of Samaria. Does anyone know where that is in Israel? Samaria. That's the northern kingdom. Remember, when this whole thing started, okay, the kingdom was split in half. And up here was uh, the, this part down here was called Judah. And this part up here was called Israel. And there were two kingdoms. When we read through 2 Samuel, okay, we have King David, then we have King Solomon. Then what happens after him? His son takes over, but there's a rebellion. His son becomes the king of Judah, and this bad guy named Jeroboam goes up north and is the king of Israel. And they remain a divided country at civil war with one another. And then later, the Assyrians come, and they take away the northern kingdom. And then shortly after that, the Babylonians come, and the Babylonians actually come this way. They come down from the north, even though Babylon is... Oh boy, let's see. We got Iraq, we find Baghdad, and we go 90 miles southeast. There it is. That's Babylon. But because this here is an impassable desert, the Babylonians would go up this way and attack from the north, which is confusing because when you read through the Bible that the bad guys are coming from the north, you're like, well, who's up north from there? But they're not actually from the north. They just attack from the north. Anyway, we don't have to get into all that. Okay, so... <clears throat> Where were we? Oh, okay. So God is saying that the Jews are going to get Samaria back. So the northern kingdom is now going to be back in their hands. Now, keep in mind, it takes 70 years. When they go off to Babylon, when they're taken to Babylon, they are there for a period of 70 years. 
and then they come back and they reclaim uh, their land in Israel again. He is saying that Israel is going to repossess land that was taken from them. They also get this land here, which was the land of the Philistines, their enemy. They're going to get the northern kingdom here, which they talk about as Samaria. And what else is the other way they describe it? I already, yeah, I already forgot. Okay, and here's the kicker. Obadiah is predicting that Israel is going to possess the land that God promised to Abraham. Now, with that being said, did anyone see the picture that I emailed to everybody today? <laughs> Whoa, look at this. Okay, give, give, her a, uh, give Jen a gold star, mark it down. She gets one. Okay, so look at this. I'm going to draw it on the map here. Turn to Genesis 15, 18. You have to see this. This is never brought up. I don't know why. It needs to be taught in churches constantly. Okay, so here we have the Nile that comes down to Aswan. We're going to go somewhere up to, uh, yep, and then we're going to follow the Euphrates, which goes this way. There we go. Okay, so in Genesis chapter 15, verse 18. Now, this is the funniest thing. When you look at the nation of Israel today, which keep in mind, um, people are constantly talking about as far as what do we do with Israel and these people want it and these people want it and the Jews say it's their land and all these different people want it okay what are we going to do with the nation of Israel well I think we should cut it up like this and I think we should cut it up like that and currently the nation of Israel what they have is less than five percent of what God said is theirs and if you want to get a biblical worldview, you need to understand this is what God said is Israel. Genesis chapter 15, verse 18, he's telling and of the sea. And he says, in the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying unto thy seed, have I given this land from the river of Egypt unto the great river, the river Euphrates. This western border is the Nile. This eastern border is the Euphrates. Now, when we saw, and keep in mind, I am not, you know, 75 years old. Back in 1948, when we saw Israel get back into the land, Bible scholars from around the world were like, oh man, okay, what does this mean? And they all went running back to their Bible saying, oh my soul, the promises of God were literal. Israel's back in the land. I can't believe this. And Israel, present day Israel, is that what did god say is israel he said from the from the nile 
to the Euphrates. That means that Israel is the rightful possessor of the most valuable portion of Egypt, the northern portion of Saudi Arabia, all of Jordan, all of Lebanon, the majority of Syria, a small part of Turkey, and at least half of Iraq and half of Kuwait. Now, let me ask you this. Knowing what you know of geopolitics, do you think that the Kuwaitis, the Saudis, the Jordanians, the Iraqis, the Syrians, and uh, part of Egypt and Turkey are going to turn that over? No. But did God say that they will possess the land? Yes, he did. That is why I am convinced that you and I are living in the most exciting time in Earth's history. This is a more exciting time than when Jesus was alive and in Jerusalem. What we are going to see happen in our lifetime, you cannot possibly imagine. And part of it is that the Jews are getting that land. Now, I would wager that at least nine out of every 10 Christians would call me crazy for saying that last thing because it sounds crazy. But I like crazy because it's all that more impressive when God does it. So I'm going on record and I'm saying that God said it in Genesis 15, 18. That's what they're going to get. How that's going to happen, I don't know. But if you went back, think of your grandparents. If you went and talked to your grandparents and asked them in 1940, hey, do you think the Jews will ever be back in uh, their land over there in the Middle East and uh, be a country again? They would laugh out loud in your face because it was impossible. And when did the Jews come back into their land? Right after World War II and the Holocaust. That's when God brought them back into their land. Again, at their lowest point. Okay, last two verses. Verse 20, Israel is going to possess uh, Zarephath, which is way up north between Tyre and Sidon, which is in uh, present-day Lebanon. Uh, here's Tyre, and uh, there's Sidon. So this is uh, past the northern border of Israel today. Um, <clears throat> the cities of the south refer to the Sinai Peninsula, which is the region between the Red Sea and the Mediterranean. That is this area here. Okay, so again, okay, God is saying that these are parts of Israel, and they're going to possess them. Just so you know, Israel has never possessed all of this, this land. There's never been a time when they've had this. So this is exciting. They have had parts of uh, present-day Egypt, and they gave it back. I was not asked to vote on that one. Um, <clears throat> and then Mount Zion uh, in verse 21 is in Jerusalem. Mount Esau will be conquered by those who possess Mount Zion. That's what it says. So the Jews are going to take back the land of Idumea, and they're also going to move further down to the south and get all of this land, which was uh, what we would have called um, the land of the Edomites. So exciting things are going to happen. I don't know when, I don't know how. I hope I get to see them. Uh, but remember, 
the Lord is the God of the impossible. 24 hours before Joseph was second in command of Egypt, the most powerful country in the world. Where was he? He was in prison. Joseph was in prison 24 hours before he was made the second most powerful man on earth. That's how fast God can change things around. That's all it takes. So <clears throat> that's a great lesson for us. It's exciting. If you are going to pray, if you are going to hope, <clears throat> hope big, pray big. Don't pray small. Pray big. Okay, pray that you make a massive change in the world. Pray that you see everyone in your school saved going to church. Pray huge. Don't do little prayers. These are the size prayers that God answers. Okay, God is the God of big miracles. Red Sea parting miracles. Raise the dead miracles. That's why we pray. Okay, there's nothing wrong with asking God to make your headache feel better. That's fine. But please add some big prayers in there too. Okay, we're done. We're 10 minutes past. Let's have a word of prayer and we'll get out of here. Washington, would you pray for us? Amen. Okay. If you are planning to be at my house on Sunday for the business meeting, please text me or let me know just so we can order enough pizza. Okay. That's it. If you end up not being able to make it, that's fine. My family can eat pizza. Okay. I'm just saying we want to make sure and have enough. Okay. You guys are wonderful.